let's go ahead and open up our Bibles to, to Luke chapter 14. Luke chapter 14. We're going to be reading um, verses 34 and 35 of Luke chapter 14. Luke chapter 14, verses 34 and 35. Salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown away. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Let's pray. Lord, I ask for ears to hear. As we, uh, as we look at just these, these couple of, of short verses this morning and as we, we, we follow them into the, the rest of Your Scriptures and, and, and what your, your Son was driving home this morning as He, as he talks about the, the cost and the nature of true discipleship, Lord, I ask that You would um, open up our hearts to this message. Lord, that we would, uh, Lord, that we would be willing to forsake all for you, that, we, that there is no relationship that we would prize more highly than that of being your son or being your daughter. That there is no possession that we would not gladly give up. And that, that there is no sin that we would allow to consume us, Lord, in our pursuit of you. Father, I just ask that we would, um, we would hear these words and that we would have ears to hear and, and hearts to follow. And pray this all in Christ's name. Amen. At this point in our study of the Gospel of Luke, we are on the, the precipice of, of what are some of Christ's most famous teachings. In, in just, a, just a few short pages, we're going to be into Luke chapter 15, and we're, gonna, we're going to, to see the, or not pages, we're just a, a double space, a double space on the, the page. We're going to be into Luke chapter 15, and in Luke chapter 15, we have the, the parable of the prodigal son. The parable of the prodigal son, the, perhaps the most famous passage of, of all of the Gospels, and perhaps the, the, the account, if I can think of, of one other passage in Scripture, if you were to ask a preacher to, if you were going to invite him to come preach at your church and say, we have a very specific text we want you to preach on, and it's the text of the prodigal son, they would, most all of them, jump for joy. Because that is one of the most beloved passages of scriptures. In fact, I would say that the, the vast majority of preachers, the best sermon they ever preach is on the prodigal son. And, and I, I hope that might be the case here in a few weeks. It's, it's one of those scriptures that, that, that everyone loves. But just before that, we have these other parables, the parable of the lost sheep. And then that's also a beloved parable of, of Christ when, when he says, you know, which one of you having a hundred sheep, if, if one is lost, you know, isn't going to go off and go find the lost one, talking about the lost and the, 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 the sinners who are, who are, who are dead and uh, in their sins and trespasses. And, and just a few other pages on, we're going to see um, the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. And that is also another famous um, teaching of Christ. And in just a few chapters, we're going to see Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. That Jesus is going to, to go into Jerusalem and that the people are going to be laying down their coats and the palm branches and, and, and proclaiming, you know, Hosanna, 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 and, and all these things. And then we're going to see in just a, just a few short pages in our study of the Gospel of Luke, the horror of the cross and the devastation of Christ buried in the grave. And then finally, our, our great hope and our great joy, His triumph over sin and death, Christ's resurrection, which is the, the most important aspect of our faith, that Christ has conquered sin, that Christ has conquered death, and that Christ is reigning on high. 
But this morning, there's these couple of verses that we have to deal with first before we get into all those things. We have to to deal with Jesus' little teaching on salt. Jesus' little teaching on salt. And if you think back maybe to some other familiarity that you have with the Scriptures, you know that salt is a frequent and a familiar analogy for our Lord. It's mentioned in all three of the synoptic Gospels, all three of of, of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the Gospels that, that seem to kind of more focus on Christ's earthly work and ministry, while the Gospel of John focuses more on Jesus' divinity as, as the Son of God. But in Matthew chapter 5, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says that you are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's a familiar theme in Matthew chapter 5. We see it there in Mark chapter 9, verse 50. Jesus says to have salt in yourselves. Have salt in yourselves because if salt loses its flavor, well, then it's not good for anything. And so this is an analogy or an illustration or, or a short little parable that, that Jesus has, has, has used multiple times. Perhaps he, it was a frequent part of his teaching where he talked about salt losing its taste. And it's an analogy that has endured and, and kind of stood the test of time. One of the most popular books written in the evangelical church over the past 50 years published in the the 1970s was a a book on evangelism called Out of the Salt Shaker and Into the World, written by Rebecca Pippert. And it is one of the most popular books in evangelism. Christianity Today ranked it as one of the top 50 most influential books ever written, which I might beg to differ. I don't think their list goes back far enough, but, but, but they still said that, you know, this is one of those hugely important books, and, and, and we all kind of get the, the, the analogy, right? We say, out of the salt shaker, and in that book, though I haven't read it, I've heard enough people talk about it to get a, a general idea, that, that the salt shaker is the church, and as evangelism, we've got to get out of the salt shaker and out into the world where people can see the seasoning effect of our lives, And this idea of salt as a seasoning is one that's kind of permeated Christian culture. And and, and we even see it in aspects of of the way that Christians speak to one another. I guess you could kind of say our our Christianese language that's kind of our our hidden secret language. And and sometimes you'll hear someone say, well, you know, we've got to keep it a little salty. And not salty in the way you might think of a sailor's language being salty, but salty in the the churchy kind of sense. That, you know, you want to be seasoned enough... Right, that, that people see your life and see that there's something different, but not so salty that they spit you out. Right? We've all had food that's too salty, right? And 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 we know what that's like. That that you put something in your mouth that's too salty, and it's like, I really need something to 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 cleanse the cleanse the throat and and, and to wash this down. Right? And so the modern interpretation of these passages, the modern interpretation that I, the modern interpretations that I just mentioned that you know kind of out of the salt shaker and into the world and, and we need to have our lives be a little bit salty and our language be a little bit salty so people see the, the pleasing flavor and pleasing aroma and want, want more of, of Christ or want to be introduced to what makes our lives different. Um, these, these modern interpretations all right, tends right, to extrapolate, Jesus' analogy on salt right, into these lessons on evangelism. It tends to, to turn these, these teachings on salt, and it, it, it talks about the analogy as one of seasoning in your life. The seasoning with the grace of God, right? seasoning with, with kind words and encouragement to make, make yourself more flavorable 
to the lost of the world. That has been the modern interpretation of these passages. And, and while I, I can't entirely disagree, I think that that's a decent analogy that we do need to, to not be um, overbearing and unkind. And as the scriptures say that we need to speak the truth in love, I think that those interpretations of these passages miss the mark. That when we look at these passages and when we look at them as we did this morning, and I very purposefully just read verse 34 and 35 to kind of stand it alone to, to see where, where, where at times folks could kind of fall into this analogy or fall into a little bit of error here about what Christ meant when he said, salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? Every time that Jesus uses this salt analogy, it is within the immediate context of obedience and personal holiness. Well, let me, let me say that again. Every time that Jesus uses the salt analogy, he is not talking about evangelism. He is talking about obedience and personal holiness. In summary, Jesus is talking about the severe nature of discipleship whenever he uses this salt illustration. Flip back with me to Matthew chapter 5 as we, as we briefly look at, at, at what Jesus was saying when he used, used this salt analogy. Matthew chapter 5, there in the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, right after the Beatitudes, and Jesus said in verse 11, Blessed are, they, are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. That's not necessarily talking about evangelism. That's talking about what our lives will be like. And Jesus says, blessed are you when people hate you on account of me. Blessed are you. We've talked about that word blessed before, that, that Jesus, when he says blessed, what he means is that you are in a right and a favored position with God, that you are in right standing and that God is looking on you as his son and as his daughter. And, and, and what Jesus is, is, is saying here is that when others hate you, right, you are blessed by God. And then he says, you are the salt of the earth. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. And so Jesus uses this little salt analogy after talking about being blessed and being ta talking about what it means to be a part of God's kingdom, what, what a kingdom person looks like, someone who is, um, someone who mourns, someone who is poor in spirit, someone who is meek, someone who hungers and thirsts for righteousness, someone who is merciful, someone who is pure in heart and a peacemaker. All of those aspects are what it looks like to be a disciple and a follower of Christ. And so Jesus says, if you are a follower of me, then you are salty, right? Then you have these characteristics that you are meek and holy and all of those kinds of things. And then he goes on from here, continue on in the Sermon on the Mount. I'm not going to read it all, but he says, you know, do you think that I've come to abolish the law? No, I haven't come to abolish the law, but I've come to fulfill the law. And then he, and, and then in the Sermon on the Mount, he has short Six short expositions on a verse, right? He says in verse 21, You have heard that it said, You shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. Jesus um, quotes the, the commandment, Thou shalt not 
murder. And then he goes on to fully explain what that means. He goes on to, he, he exposits that verse and, and brings out the full truth that, that, that Christ, or that God, when he gave the ten, ten Commandments, was not merely concerned with murder, but was also concerned with anger of the heart towards our fellow man and towards our, the, fellow, the fellow women in our lives. He also goes on to lust. He says, you have heard that it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And Jesus goes on and he talks about divorce and he talks about oaths and being a truth speaker. And he talks about um, retaliation and judgment and how judgment belongs to God. And then he says that you shall love your enemies. Jesus tells these short, six short little sermons based upon these Old Testament commands. And all of those point to what it means to be a follower of Christ. What it means to be a son or daughter of the king. And slipped into there, slipped into there is that analogy about salt. Flip with me to Mark chapter 9. Mark chapter 9. And we see the exact same thing here in Mark chapter 9. Mark chapter 9, picking it up at verse 42. Verse 42. Mark chapter 9. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. That's strong language. That's strong language where Jesus is talking not just about children, right? Not just about little ones, but, but about believers in the church. About people who are followers and disciples of Jesus Christ. And he, sa- he calls the, us his little ones, right? Because we are. We are God's children. And he says, whoever causes one of my children to sin. Right? And I believe that this is a warning to, to false teachers and those who would lead people astray, both within and without the church. Right, those who, who pollute people's minds with, with lies and, and false truths and, and all sorts of other worldly philosophies and pop psychology and all those things, all the things that are competing for God's Word or, or, or standing in opposition to God's Word in our hearts and our minds. Jesus says, whoever leads someone astray, whoever leads someone away from me, it would be better for them to have a millstone tied around their neck. Right? A millstone. Something that you would use to grind grain. I, I've, I've, I've been to some old grain mills. I'm, I'm thinking of one now in um, um, Appalachia and, and, and Smoky Mountain National Park that we went to visit once when we were back visiting family. And it's, it's this great big millstone. And, and it was one of the first um, granaries in that region. And it was built on a river right next to a waterfall. Because it had to, I mean, just picture the scene in your mind. Picture the, you know, the picturesque big water wheel. Right, and, the, and it would spin a turbine that would spin the grinding stone that was a massive piece of granite, right? One that, that you would not be able to lift by yourself. One that I would imagine that all of us in here, if we got together and tried to lift it ourselves, would not be able to lift it. That it would require some major horsepower. And in the days when they used grinding stones, it really was horsepower, right? It would require a large animal to be able to maneuver and lift one of these things. In Jesus' day, they had the same thing, Right? A great big rock, essentially. A great big rock. And Jesus says, if you lead someone astray, right? for those of you who lead people astray, it would be better for you to have a giant rock tying around your head and to have yourself cast into the sea. Right? That's strong language. That's strong language. And he continues on, and the language doesn't lessen up. Right? This is all 
um, imagery of discipleship and all imagery of, of the severe, severe nature of what it means to be a follower of Christ. He says, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. This is a severe attitude towards sin in our lives. If you remember a few years ago, there was a a man over in Utah who was canyoneering. Right, and some of you remember this. There, there was, you know, quite a bit in the news about it, and then they made a movie out of this situation. The man was doing some some canyoneering and, and going through the canyons, and he somehow got himself pinned between a rock and a rock, not even a rock in a hard place, just a rock and a rock. And his arm was pinched in there, and he could not get his arm free. And, and he realized pretty quick that the only way out of this situation was to take out his pocket knife and cut off his hand. It was cut off his hand and live. Or keep both of his hands and die. And, and the reason it was so astounding was that, that, that who can do that, right? In, in our minds, like a lot of us thinking about, I, myself thinking about the pain of being stuck and pinned there and dying of exposure and, and thirst, that might be preferable to cutting off my hand, right? That would, that would be a terrible and awful experience. And Jesus is, is using that same kind of imagery right here. He says, if, 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 if part of your life is leading you into sin, if there is something in your heart that is leading you to sin, then get rid of it. And it doesn't matter if it's as vital as a hand. It doesn't matter if it's as vital as a foot or an eye. He says, gouge it out. Cut it off. Jesus is speaking to the severe nature of discipleship. The analogy is linked to obedience right, and taking drastic measures against sin. Look at verse 50 and here's the analogy. Salt is good, but if salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Again, this, this, this analogy has nothing to do with evangelism but everything to do with discipleship. Everything to do with personal holiness. Everything to do with taking drastic measures to follow Christ. Everything to to do with living your lives in a radically different manner to follow Christ. It has nothing to do with evangelism. Turn back with me to Luke chapter 14 as, as we look at the immediate context of these verses. Picking it up at verse 25, last week's passage. Now great crowds accompanied him. And he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it. Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it will begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. 
Or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Jesus turns to this great crowd of people and he demands their highest love. He says that your love for me has to be to such a degree that it makes all of your other human relationships look like hatred. He looks at them and says, if you are going to be my disciple, if you are going to follow after me and be my son and my daughter, you have to take up your instrument of war and destruction. You have to take up your cross and fight and kill sin. He uses the same analogy back in Luke chapter 10 where he says, if anyone is going to follow after me, he has to take up his cross daily and deny himself. The life of a disciple of Christ is one of self-denial. You cannot rely on your emotions. You cannot rely on your feelings. You cannot rely on worldly philosophies or anything else. You can only rely on the truth of God's Word. Right? A, 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 a kind of a classic illustration of, of what the Christian life looks like is a train. And we have truth as the engine. And we have faith as the car behind us. And then the, the, the end the, is the caboose of feelings. Right. You can believe the right things without having the feelings. But if you just have feelings and, and the, the, the caboose is meaningless without the train engine. And Jesus says, you have to follow me. You have to follow my word. And he t- says, if you're going to be my disciple, you have to count the cost. You have to count the cost because you don't want your life to be like someone who merely lays a foundation and then doesn't have any money to finish the building or doesn't have any money to finish the tower. And if you're going to be my disciple, you have to give up all of your stuff, at least in your heart. And and here Jesus touches on, on the three most basic areas of our lives. Right? He touches on ourselves. Right? You have to deny yourself and take up your cross daily and follow Him. He focuses on our relationships, our, our, our family relationships, our friend relationships, and, and, and our social relationships. And then He touches on our stuff. And really, if you boil life down, that's basically the three aspects of what it is to be a human. We've got ourselves, we've got our family and friends, and we've got our stuff. That is kind of an all-encompassing list of everything that it means to be human. And Jesus says, you have to give it all to me. You have to follow me. If you are going to be a disciple, you're going to give up your life, you're going to give up your relationships, and you're going to give up your stuff. Jesus, every time he uses this salt analogy, is speaking in unequivocally severe terms about what it means to be a follower of Christ. He says to give it all up, and if it gets in my way, cut it off. He says get rid of it. He says to follow after me. And then he talks about salt. And Jesus' primary purpose of this salt analogy, the Christ had the primary purpose of salt in the ancient world in his mind. In our day and age, we, we so often think about salt as merely a seasoning. As a seasoning. And in the ancient world, and, and really up into the modern period, salt was much more important as a preservative. Salt was much more important as a preservative. Jesus says that salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? 
The difference between the seasoning analogy and the preservation analogy that Jesus is using here is the difference between a nice grilled steak and beef jerky. Right? A nice grilled steak and some beef jerky. Now, don't get me wrong. I love a good steak. Right? I had the privilege last night of going to Matt's house and Matt grilled steaks. Thank you, Matt. Right? And, and, and they were seasoned. I'm going to guess there was some salt on that seasoning. And had there been any leftovers, right, we would have put them in the fridge and they would have been there for a few days. Um, I had an experience with beef jerky. And it was delicious. It was delicious. I love a good steak. I, I don't know anyone in this room that doesn't appreciate a good, juicy steak. Now we're all hungry, thinking about steak and not about discipleship. Um, jerky is a little bit more useful than steak. And, and, I, and, I, and let me use this illustration, or let me use this, this short story, if you'll indulge me, to show the, the usefulness of beef jerky. Uh, a few weeks ago, we, we went on vacation, and we went down to Mexico. And, and the night before we left, um, Simon and I went to the grocery store to pick up a few necessities. And, and one of those necessities for me was beef jerky, um, because I knew that Desha was going to pack snacks, and it was mostly going to be fruit and nuts and carrot sticks, which is fine, but I needed something else. And so I picked up a package of beef jerky, and I kind of hid it from the children as we got going. Because if I told the kids, that if the kids saw the beef jerky, there would be no moss beef jerky in the car. And so, so we, we started off, and, and, I, and I ate a few pieces of beef jerky. And we're, like, first thing is we're heading out of Gunnison in the car. And then I stuck it down in, like, that side pocket of the, of the driver's side door. You know, the, that little pocket where you... Um, put beef jerky, apparently. I don't know what else you put. I put pencils in my work truck there. Um, but anyway, so I, I put the beef jerky down there. And then, unbelievably, I forgot about it. I forgot that I put the beef jerky down there. And we drove to Phoenix, right? And it was like 100 degrees in Phoenix, right? And then we drove to Mexico. And, and, and it was really hot in Mexico. And the car was parked outside in the beating sunshine for, for an entire week, right? And then we left after, after we got done. And... and and the first thing I did when we got back to the United States, got across, back across the border, the, the last thing I did as we were leaving the United States was fill the car up with gas. And the first thing I did when we got back was fill up the car with gas because the gasoline they sell in Mexico isn't as good as the gasoline we sell here in the United States because the government owns the gas, com- gas stations. But that's besides the point. The, the, the first, uh, and so we're gassing up the car. And so I open up the door, and I'm gassing up the car, and I'm standing there, and I look over, and lo and behold, there's my beef jerky that I forgot about. And it's been sitting in, in what is kind of like a 100-degree car all week. Now, and, and here's where the difference between seasoning and preservation comes in. Imagine if the night before I left for Mexico, we'd had some steak. Nice, juicy steak grilled on the grill. right? And, and for some reason, there was half of it left over. And I thought, I'm going to take that with me as a little snack tomorrow. And I stuck it in the driver's side door of the car. Right? It would not have lasted all week in Mexico because after about a day... Right, the smell would have started to get to us. The, the stench of rotting meat, and it would have said, there's something wrong in the car. Right? There's something wrong. And if, it, if by chance we would have left it in the car, we might have all been walking back across the border into the United States because we couldn't stand the smell in the car. Right? The difference between seasoning and preservation is that I was standing there gassing up the car going, hey, there's my beef jerky. I'm going to eat that right now. And, and the thought crossed my mind I was like, I wonder if it went bad. It's been in the car all week, and it's been like 100 degrees. And I thought, nah, it's beef jerky. It's preserved with salt for the long term. It's preserved, and through that preservation, 
and drying process, it's something that is useful for a long time. It's useful for a long time. Jerky is a little bit more useful, if you understand my meaning, than a steak. And Jesus here, when he's talking about salt, is talking about its preserving nature within the life of a disciple. Not about evangelism. Not about seasoning our lives to make it more attractive to the world. But preserving our lives for the kingdom and the glory of God. So here in verse 34, Jesus says, salt is good. Salt is good. Salt is useful. Salt is use, useful as for preservation. Right? Up until the modern era and the invention of mechanical refrigeration and, and freezers, salt was the only way to preserve meat. In chapter 15 in the parable of the prodigal son, one of the, one of the things that we could notice in there is that he, the, the father, when the prodigal son returns, tells, the, tells his servants to go and kill the fattened calf right, and prepare it for this, for this big banquet. The reason why he didn't say, you know, go get the calf out of the, you know, the storage place is because if you wanted to have meat, if you wanted to have fresh meat, the only way was to go and kill the animal right then and then preserve it. It was not going to last for very long, right, in in open room temperatures. We all understand that. And so that's why you had to keep it alive or you had to preserve it. Or you had to preserve it. And Jesus here is saying that salt is good for preservation. Right? But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? What on earth is Christ talking about if salt has lost its taste? Right? Have you ever had salt go bad? Right? There are lots of things in our house, even with refrigeration, right, that, that, that go bad. Right? And, 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 and sometimes you find these science experiments in the back of the refrigerator. Or, you know, I, I could imagine a scenario in my mind where if we didn't have um, four children that we would run out of milk or we, our milk would stay past the due date and it would go bad even in the refrigerator. Right? And, and we understand this, but, but salt never goes bad. I don't think, even think they put an expiration date on the, the jug because it's a base mineral, right? They, they quarry it out of the ground and grind it up. Or, or harvest it from the sea, it's, it's salt. It doesn't, doesn't go bad. You put it in a cool, dark place, and it's good for a really, I mean, I can't even, it's good forever, I think. Right? Except maybe, as some commentators have pointed out, Dead Sea salt. Right? Dead Sea salt was one of those things um, in, the, in the nation of Israel that was mixed with other elements, particularly mixed with gypsum. I, I don't, and, and if you've ever hung drywall and gotten a little drywall dust in your mouth. You kind of know that chalky flavor of drywall. And, and, and then it would lose its flavor. But I don't think that's what Jesus is talking about. Some commentators have pointed out, well, maybe Jesus is talking about Dead Sea salt here and, and how it was a lesser quality salt and those kinds of things. I don't think Jesus is talking about that all. I think he's talking about the fact that a true disciple losing their love for Christ is as unnatural as salt losing its flavor. That a true disciple of Christ losing their love and devotion for Christ is as unnatural as salt losing its flavor. And he says, how shall it be restored? How shall its saltiness be restored? And, and the answer is, is it can't. Right? It can't. You can't make salt that somehow went bad all of a sudden be salty again. It's useless. 
it is absolutely useless. And he says, it is of no use, either for the soil right, or for the manure pile. Right? It's not even good as fertilizer. You can't do anything with it. All you can do is throw it out. All you can do is throw it out. And in another place, I think in Matthew, he says to be trampled underfoot. Right? The only thing that salt is useful for is, a salt that is unsalty is useful for is to throw it out for a little bit of traction on a footpath. Right? This is a sobering passage. This should, this should cause us to, to take stock of our lives. All of this, this talk about what it means to be a true disciple of Christ, what it means to have the utmost and highest devotion to Christ, where we count all of our relationships lost, where we count um, all of our stuff lost, where we're willing to sacrifice and get rid of and, 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 and repent of every single aspect of sin in our lives. This should be a very sober warning. This is ours as believers to hear in Christ, right? This is, this, is, this is ours as believers to hear and understand. He says there at the end of verse 35, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Jesus said in, in, back in Luke chapter 8, verse 10, that He was going to be speaking in parables, right? To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God, but for others they are in parables, so that seeing they may not see, and hearing they may not understand. Jesus spoke in parables so that true believers and followers of Christ would see His words as words that bring eternal life. And for those that reject Him, it would look like meaningless jabber. And this is ours to hear. Jesus says to this great crowd of people, if you're my follower, if you have holy ears, so to speak, you will hear this holy and divine Message And while it's a sobering truth, while it's one that, that, that should, should put a little bit of fear into our lives and, and, and one that, that, would, that should cause us a little bit of concern, it's like the warning that we give to our children about things that are going to kill them. For those of us who have, who have raised children, for those of us who have been around small children and then someday, someday will have children, we understand that there's things that we don't let our kids do because it's going to kill them. Right? We're going to hurt them. Right? When you have a little baby, one of the most important things that you can teach them is, no, that's hot. Right? If you touch that, it's going to burn you. Or, or no, stop it right now. You cannot put the fork in the electrical outlet. I know that looks like fun, but that's not allowed. Right? It's going to hurt you. We, do, we set rules and parameters and give our children instruction right, so they don't kill themselves. Right? Here Jesus is doing that. He's giving us this warning right, in love. Right? He's giving us this warning in love. And so I'd like to, to look at just one other passage or, or a couple other passages here of someone who heard this warning about salt losing its saltiness, who heard it and understood it for what it meant, understood it that it was a, a message about what it means to be a disciple and follower of Christ. Turn with me over to Hebrews chapter 6. Hebrews chapter 6. We're going to look at, at verses 4 through 12. Um, Hebrews chapter 6, verses 4 through 12. And I, and I want you to, to pay careful attention this morning to the, the, the verbs. As, as we read this passage, pay attention to the verbs that are used that are that are kind of experiential, but they're not in full possession of what happens. 
verses 4 through 12. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding Him up to contempt. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls in it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. These are experiential, but not fully possessive words. If I, if I could use this analogy, that these words here, the, the enlightened, tasted, shared, that's the difference between Peter and Judas. Peter and Judas share so much in common within the Scriptures. They both had the full privilege of being one of the apostles, being one of the men who followed Christ around for three years during his, his earthly ministry and drunk in all of his teaching. That Peter and Judas both heard Jesus say, salt is good. Right? That Peter and Judas both were there gathering up the baskets of leftovers after Jesus fed them the 5,000 um, people and, and, and they, they were there for, for countless healings and miracles and, and private times of instruction, all these things. Peter and Judas were both all there. But one of them didn't get it and one of them blew it. Right? Judas betrayed Christ and Peter almost betrayed Christ and denied Christ. But there was a difference. There was a difference. Judas was enlightened. Judas saw the light that was there, whereas Peter had the light. We can't just have some light shine into our lives. We just can't have friendships with with believers. We can't just come to church and hear sermons and sing songs and, and, and kind of have the light shined on us, shone on us. We have to be the light. Jesus said back back in Matthew chapter 5 that that you are the light of the world, right? We don't want just God's Word to to shine on us. We want God's Word to be indwelled and shine from us. Judas had light. Peter was light. You're the light of the world. Judas tasted, right? Judas was kind of like at a wine tasting, right? If you've ever been to a wine tasting, you know, if you don't want to get um, hammered at the wine tasting and not... Go home, not be able to drive yourself home, right? Lots of people go and they they swish the wine and then they spit it out, right? So they can sample more wines and, and see which one they like. That was kind of like Judas. Judas kind of took Christ and and then spit it out. Said, "Eh, I'm going to move on." Right? Peter consumed Christ. Right? We don't need to just taste. Who Christ is. We don't just want a little sample. We want to be filled with who Christ is. Judas kind of shared in the Holy Spirit, right? Judas was certainly one of the twelve. Judas was certainly one of the seventy-two who went out and saw miracles performed and all those kinds of things and, and was exposed to and around the Holy Spirit's work. Right? We don't want to be sh- we don't want to be sharers of the Holy Spirit. We want to be filled and indwelled and be possessed by the Holy Spirit. Judas tasted the heavenly gifts 
and the powers of the age to come and, 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 and tasted the goodness of God's word. We don't just want to taste it. Right? We don't want just a little snack. We want to devour and feast from the word of God. We want, to, we want to feast on the Word of God. If, if the, the, the bulk of the exposure that you have to the Word of God is a couple of kind of folk art wall sayings on the wall of your house, you know, blessed is the, you know, this house for we fear the Lord. Or, you know, I can't even think of the verses now that are usually on those things. Right? If that's it, right? If the, if the best... Um, uh, exposure to Scripture that you have on a daily basis is the kind of nice um, emotional, moral platitudes that you hear on Christian radio by the, the DJ, and then you're just tasting. You're just tasting. You need to devour and be hungry for the Word of God. Right? It's not simply enough to taste. It's not enough to, 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 to just have a little bit of light shined in your life occasionally. Right? That we need to stand firm in Christ. We need to stand tall in our power against the evil one. We need to be able to to fight hard through the power of Christ's work on the cross to to make war against sin. To, 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 To be willing and able to forsake everything for the cause of Christ. Through faith in Christ's work on the cross, Right? You are indwelled with a divine power to make war against your flesh and the devil. This is, this is saltiness in your life. The, the, the power of Christ in you is the power, um, and it's the power of the age to come. Right? When, when the, the writer of Hebrews says they've tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come. The powers of the age to come is the ability to fight, make war, and win against sin in your life. So often as believers, and I, and I know because I, I am assailed by sin, and I'm assailed by struggles and doubts. Right? And when I listen to my struggles and my doubts and my fears and all those kinds of things, I start to feel very small in the face of sin. And then I remember Christ's finished work on the cross. That I remember it's not because of what I've done, but it's because of what Christ has done. It's because of what Christ has done that I can stand firm in who Christ is, not in who I am, and I can fight and make war against sin. And there is true victory over sin in your life. There is true discipleship in your life. And you can be salty. right? You can have God's salts in your life. The power of the Holy Spirit. And it is amazing and blessed truth. Look at, look at 2 Corinthians chapter 4. This is the treasure that Paul writes about when he says, but we have this treasure in jars of clay. He says that we have this unsurpassing power to show that the unsurpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We have the truth and the power of Christ's finished work on the cross. His body broken for us. His blood shed for us. His righteousness given to us. Our sin payment made for us because of what Christ has done. Because of what Christ has done, we have this power. And it is a treasure, right? but it's in this jar of clay. It's in this frail and broken piece of pottery. right? And to show that the surpassing power belongs not to us, but to God, not to us, 
but to God, that Christ won the victory. And we are the inheritors. We are the, the ones who benefit from this victory. And because of that, right, because of that, we can be afflicted. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Right? There is sin that comes against us, it seems, from so many angles. Right? There's sin that comes from the world that seems to bombard us. Right? There's sin that comes from within, that from within our flesh that, 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 that wants to get out. Right? Um, anger, jealousy, bitterness, um, unforgiveness, all those things kind of spring up from within. And all the things that come from, from outside, anger and lust and, and, and pride and, and, a, and a covetousness and all these kinds of things. Right? Where, 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 where we take our eyes off of Christ and we fix our eyes on something else that we think will bring us joy and happiness. Right? We are afflicted but we will not be crushed. We are perplexed, but not driven to despair. There's so much in this world that we do not understand. Right? I, 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 am, I, I look at the world around us and I, I, I wonder what on earth is going on. Right? right? And I wonder why does God just not like end it all right now? That would seem to be a much cleaner way to do it. Right? And the, the reason is, is that, that God is being patient. Right? That everyone is, that is going to repent is, is going to make it to that point. Right? But, but, but we are not driven to despair. We are persecuted, but not forsaken. That we are struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. That through Christ's death, we have His life. Right? Through Christ's death on the cross, we also get His victory over the grave. And we carry that within us. Right? That Jesus may also be manifested in your bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So that death is at work, at us, at work in us, but life in you. Right? This is the treasure that we have Christ's victory on the cross, right? And we need to praise Christ, right? For his persevering and preserving salty work in our lives, right? That we're going to be like beef jerky, right? That we're going to be able to stand, right? Through, through the trials that we're not going to spoil, that we're not going to be thrown out, that we're not going to be trampled underfoot, right? Because of Christ's work, in our lives. I know I'm kind of treading in, in theologically murky waters here. Right? There, there are some who, who say that, that Hebrews chapter 6 is one of the most difficult passages to understand in the New Testament. That this talk of, of losing salvation is, is um, some, would say, some would say heretical. Some would say um, that you know, it's so difficult to touch on. Why even bother? Um, just to leave it alone. Um, but Jesus didn't leave it alone. Jesus didn't leave it alone. He, he said to persevere on, to, to keep your saltiness, to follow after Him. There are some, some real practical means of doing that. Um, kind of the, the ordinary means of grace as we, as we talk about them in the church. And, and we're experiencing one of those right now. right? The, the preaching and teaching of God's Word. And, 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 and for me, it is such a joy it's such a joy to, to share with you these things and to, to proclaim these things to you. And, and, and because as much as I'm proclaiming them to you, I'm proclaiming them to myself. Proclaiming to myself to persevere and stand in God's Word and to, to, to be the light and all of those things. Those are, those are aimed as much at my heart as they are at your hearts. 
Right? It is a joy to do that. One of the, one of the ways that we, we, we grow in grace and stand firm in who God is is, is by, by fellowship of, of the believers, by, by spending time with one another and, and, and discipling one another and encouraging one another on towards Christ and, and time in God's Word. Right? Time in God's Word. Verse 5, tasted the goodness of the Word of God. Right? Your private time in God's Word, your, your, your personal um, time spent alone with Christ will, will yield such a great benefit. And it is such a, a neglected area of our faith. Right? It's such a neglected area. Um, so often people are kind of like, well, I'm not really a reader. Or I'm not really this or that. Or, you know, and, and, and I would just encourage you not to make excuses. Not to make excuses. Um, get into God's Word. Right? Get into God's Word. Um, fully avail yourself of the, the ordinary means of grace. Right? Root yourself in the truth and, and your emotions and your heart will certainly follow. And, and as a word of encouragement, I, w- I want to close with, with Hebrews chapter 6, verses, verses 9-12. through 12, the, the, the last part of that, right? The last part of that passage we looked at. Where, where the writer said, For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated, receives a blessing from God. Right? The, the author says to, to produce a crop. Produce a crop. Don't produce thorns and thistles. Right? It is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. But in the ancient world, if you had a field that was just full of thorns and thistles, you just burn it and start over again. Right? There, was no, there was no fertilizer or, or, not, or, or pesticides or, or herbicides or any of those kinds of things. You just burnt the field down and started over again. Right? And then verse 9. Though we speak in this way. Right? Though we speak in this severe way. Talking about the severe and, and, and desperate nature of discipleship. Yet in your case, beloved. You feel that kind of pressure valve go off? Sometimes when I'm reading and studying the Scriptures, it's like the pressure is building and building and building and all of a sudden the release valve. A little bit of steam. That word Beloved. Just kind of lets a little bit out. We feel sure of better things. Things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for His name and serving the saints as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end. To have that full assurance of hope. Right? If you've repented of your sins... Right? And you're, you're walking in repentance and, and following after Christ. No. And if you have doubts, right? Right? know that, 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 that we all struggle with sin. John, for, over in 1 John, John says, but if you sin, there's a, there's, a, there's a solution to this. And what a beautiful word. That if and when we do sin, right? we, there's, there is forgiveness. There is grace. Right? Um, we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have that full assurance of hope until the end. Right? We have this full assurance of hope. Right? And I love verse 12. So that you may not be sluggish. Right? So often people say, oh, you believe in once saved, always saved. Oh, yeah. And that make you kind of lazy. And it's like, no. No. I have this full assurance of hope so that you may not be sluggish. But be imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promise. Right, because we have full assurance of faith, right? We we can work and labor on, knowing that the goal has already been accomplished, 
and knowing that the work has already been finished. Right? So, so often, um, one of the most exhausting things to do is work on something and not know what the outcome is going to be. Right? And, and you're working and you're working and you're working and, and, and you're not sure if it's going to succeed. Right? If I could guarantee, and, and, and this is kind of a premise that our world works on, right? If I could guarantee you success at something, if I could say, hey, if you come to me today, and there's all sorts of people that do this, right? And, and put $10,000 into this investment, and if you take steps A, B, C, D, E, F, and G, right, that $10,000 investment will become you know, a million dollars in a year, right? There's people that sell all sorts of get rich quick schemes, right? Um, there's Virtually, I guess none of them are true because if they were, all of us would be millionaires, right? But if you could have that kind of full assurance, like everyone would do it. That's the kind of full assurance that we have in Christ, right? And if you had full assurance, you would do steps A, B, C, D, E, F, and G all the way through double Z if you had to because you knew that it would work. You knew that the final outcome would be secure. As, as believers in Christ, as followers of Christ, we are assured of the outcome because of Christ's work on the cross. We are assured of the outcome. And so it is our great joy to not be sluggish, but to get to work and labor hard, knowing that the final goal has already been accomplished and has already been won. Um, for those of you who are, are weary, for those of you who are unsure, for those of you who are struggling to get off of the starting line, this morning as we come and take communion, I want to encourage you right, that the race is already won, right, that the building is already completed, and, and, and that your victory is secure, and, and to persist and continue on in the faith of Christ. Let's pray. Father, I thank You for this time in Your Word. I thank You for the assurance of salvation that we have, and I thank You for the, the stern warnings of Your Scripture to, consi con to consistently persist on in Your work. Father, I ask that, that we would have um, all Peters and no Judases here. That we would not merely taste that we would not be merely exposed, that we would not merely experience um, being around God's people, but that we would devour and be consumed by Your Word and who You are. As, as we come to the table and, and celebrate the finished work of our salvation, I just ask that Your, your heart would, or that our hearts would um, be, be filled with joy at who You are and what You've done and your finished work on the cross, and that we would put all of our faith, that we would put all of our hope in that, and that we would, we would reap all of our joy, that we would, we would dig down deep and find all of our strength to fight and make war against sin in our lives, not in ourselves, but in You. Lord, we love You and we pray this in, in Jesus' blessed and holy name. Amen.